Thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. You can find us on the amazing internet at persuadio.nl or just do a Google search for Persuadio and it should come up. You can find this and all the other episodes on individual blog posts there on the website. Underneath the blog posts is also a link to subscribe on iTunes or Google, whatever podcast aggregator you choose. We would also love to get your feedback on the show. There's a comment section under each of the blog posts uh, for feedback. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are also always welcome. This week, the Poker Zoo visits Las Vegas. Enjoy the roundtable discussion of poker rooms, the state of poker itself, and, of course, food. Welcome back this week to the Poker Zoo. We have a special sort of episode today for you. We are all at the WSOP, but most of us in the TBR community are cash game players. And for that reason and for listener reasons, uh, because so much of the talk is about the tournaments, obviously, we're going to focus in on the ring games and get into the full culture of that, find out what's going on with the individual members, and maybe something valuable will come out of it. So we've got four TBR members today we're going to talk to, and they represent um, uh, players across the spectrum of the poker community. Uh, first, and all of them are my former students, uh, all, all of them are serious players who play uh, a variety of games. Our first one is Greg Porter, who is a professional and has already been on the podcast before. Uh, Luka Vitasevic is a semi-pro who takes much-needed income through poker. And then we have two, um, I think, well, well, we'll call them retirees. We'll, we'll say Bruce McAlpine, who has also been on the podcast, uh, is a 2-5 player from the Sacramento area. And, of course, Dean Martin, our own announcer and voiceover expert. So welcome, guys, to the podcast. Woohoo! Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you're all so excited. Uh, tell us about why you came here and uh, what's going on. Tell us about the games. Tell us about hands. We're going we're gonna to have a lot of things going on. But I wanted to start with you, Luca, because you... Uh, your your income is the most interesting of the four players. Tell us about why you need poker and what the WSOP cash games mean to you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as is kind of alluded to in the intro, uh, semi-professional. So I have a, a nine to five job, but my uh, household uh, also relies on my poker income. So the WSOP means a few things for me. It's often a time where I can escape for a few weeks and just get in a ton of volume. So I, I usually come out of it a much better player because I'm able to expose myself to so many hands and just hours of play. Uh, it's also a time where it's hopefully uh, profitable at the cash games. I can consistently you know, play day in, day out. And then I also uh, decided to deviate a little bit from my mostly cash game roots and play a couple tournaments to see maybe if I can get a big score and improve uh, prove the old bankroll a little bit. So you're an optimist, in other words. <laughs> yeah, after experiencing this tournament, masochist might be a better term. but That's right. And the IRS loves you for your hopefulness, by the way. Yeah. 
Greg, you're the you know the serious professional here, along with myself. What does the WSOP cash games mean to you? What do they mean to you? Yeah, I think it's like uh, an interesting. Well, so one part of one part of the reason that I like to come here for the summer is to challenge myself to play higher stakes, and um, I've kind of failed on that front this summer because I was struggling a little bit coming into it. So I started playing uh, smaller and haven't been playing as much uh, five ten or taking shots at bigger games than five ten. But I think uh, like one thing that's interesting every summer is kind of seeing the trends, the way the game is evolving, the way uh, certain certain plays or certain uh, the way the game basically is evolving and the way that uh, the the market ideas, there's like a sort of efficiency in the market and and ideas spread. So seeing, you know, the players that come from all over and uh, challenging yourself to play against those players and seeing how the game has changed, I guess in my room, things don't evolve as as quickly. There aren't as many uh, tough players, so it's kind of uh, there's a sort of stasis there, I guess. Uh, So, yeah, just just uh, I guess that's what it means for me. Okay, so let's seize on that for all four of you, uh, starting with you, Greg. What are the trends that you're seeing? And by the way, I know you're playing 5-10 and 2-5 for the most part. You'll all be talking about your respective games. But yeah, what's what's going on with the player pool at the WSOP cash? I'm seeing uh, a lot more 3-betting, but not 4-betting. Uh, I'm seeing the, the down bet is... Uh, more common than before, but uh, mostly still just in in three bed pots, and uh, and mostly for the most part, I think the players using it still don't know how to respond to being raised at a high frequency. Seeing like the casual players in general are getting a little better. Still, in general, not not enough bluffs in in ranges uh, as the pots get big. Yeah, and there's just a lot of uh, sort of nits, table changing, and and hunting for better games. Yeah, indeed. In fact, one of our favorite mascots is Table Change Guy this season. <laughs> uh, he was he was sort of brought to my attention by Fausto, who took a picture of him. He's this tall, lanky European guy who sort of stood on his chair in the WSOP Pavilion games, clearly looking for a better game and he it didn't turn out to just be a, a one-off photograph we ended up seeing this guy everywhere and the guy can't, right. he can't sit still he's, he's always, always he's always walking uh, every time i see him he's walking i don't know that i've ever seen him sitting in a game but i've seen him at several casinos walking around looking <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly I, I have to laugh every time i see him Bruce, you come from uh, a, a, not- a very special community, the, the Stones Gambling Hall, which is notorious for its insane games, which is sort of an overstatement, right? Because the games really aren't really all like that. But, but uh, how, does, how, does the, how do the WSOP games uh, compare, and what are you seeing difference, uh, the differences from them? Yeah, I would go along with uh, what Greg has said. I I am also seeing a lot of people trying to execute down bets, and they they are usually in, in the three bet pots. And I still see the rec 
players blasting flops and oversee betting quite a bit. So there's there's kind of a dichotomy between um, I think players who are trying to learn and study the game versus the players who aren't doing that, who've just been probably doing the same things they've been doing all their poker career is, you know, hey, it's, um, you know, I raise pre and then here's the flop. And no matter what it is, I'm just going to bet this flop and and uh, kind of go from there. I am seeing a lot of uh, responses of three bets uh, that are basically calls, not a lot of four bets. And I am, and, and just like what Greg said, it's it's mostly value, value, value with very, very few bluffs on the end, which is kind of, which kind of cost me a lot of money because I've tried to execute some bluffs on the end the first time I was out here and I just basically just value on myself or just crush my own, you know, st- I would felt myself basically because um, these guys are only continuing with value past the turn. So uh, those are things that I'm that I've seen since I've been out here. All right. So a lot of flop expertise out there, or at least uh, trying to play the flop well. But then we revert to our patterns when we we go deeper into the hand. Yeah. Correct. How about you, Dean? Uh, you know, I don't know that much about your your games, although even though I I've heard you know about. Charlestown and whatnot from you and Charles Murray. Um, what's what's the difference between the WSOP and your your local East Coast games? Well, uh, I'm actually back home now. Um, was in Vegas for ten days or so, and it's been frustrating getting back. I I really enjoyed Vegas, and I'm just getting out of in the past several months getting out of what Bruce has talked about. My game has typically been raise big, you know, two five, maybe raise to twenty five or thirty five or forty, and thin the field down to one person, or maybe just take it down pre flop and then barrel away at the uh, at the flop. And Chris, you've kind of berated me <laughs> in the chat for for that, and so I've lowered my opens. A bit and um, maybe raised my three bet frequency or four bet bluff uh, a bit into uh, what what might be a three bet and then two or three callers and then I uh, four bet and and try to take it down. But so my my Vegas trip was very profitable. Um, was able to pay all my expenses and come home with a couple, you know, three, thirty-five hundred, four grand uh, profit. So I was feeling really good and came back and had a few profitable sessions at Charlestown, but um, uh, really the best session I had was when I went down to uh, National Harbor one day, and so I was able to. I felt like I understood the game a little better when I went down there and then went back to Charlestown and ran into, ended up only being able to play one, two most of the time. And, um, just had a couple frustrating sessions there. Didn't, not that I lost money, but just didn't make anything. So, so well, sure. But what's the difference between the WSOP games, the games that the WSOP are poker players, players who love poker, players willing to pay a premium just to play with other assumedly good players what 
what is the what is what separates the pool here in Vegas from what you experience at Maryland Live or at Charlestown? I would say there are a lot of really weak players and a few really good players. So I think you run into to a lot of tourists that are coming into town to play WSOP tournaments. And so the uh, it's kind of easier to see who the just want to limp and or call along and who is actually wanting to three bet and four bet uh, lighter who I would say are the pros that were in town uh, taking money from the from the tourists I don't know if that makes any sense or not so, <laughs> not really uh, we'll run with it uh, you're, you, let's return to what you were saying. Were you in when you were in the WSOP games? Did you sounded like you were saying you were taking on my advisement to squeeze more to play more of a aggressive preflop game, and that was working for you? Yes, I was watching for who I thought were were tourists in town who wanted to either limp in and call if they if there were two or three people limping in i would make a raise and get maybe two or three callers and then be able to play post flop if i found a pro in the game or someone trying to raise the limpers then i would four bet against them and usually take down the pot pre or come along pre-flop and then go against the pro post-flop because I knew they were three betting and four betting lighter or bluffing and I only played over at the Rio room uh, one time most of most of my play was at Venetian or over at Aria or at the win okay so what you're saying is you were taking advantage of the aggressive tendencies of the, some of the more serious WSOP types. Correct. You are able to put in, yeah, another raise or even flat, perhaps with a stronger range than they might end up with in their three betting range. Exactly, because I looked like the old white guy tourist guy in town. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I agree. And that and that worked. That worked well, and you earned all your mojitos. So congratulations. <laughs> now, Luca, you didn't. You haven't earned so many mojitos yet have you yeah i'm uh i'm, I'm still <laughs> battling <laughs> tell us about how your your vegas cash games has gone have gone because it's not all fun and games uh when you're losing what what what's what's been happening yeah i mean uh in some ways i'm kind of getting the experience that uh, i reference in that uh it, i'm learning and i'm trying to uh, figure out how to adjust to these games from my home games uh, in, in Portland, which are very different. And I mean, they're tight out here and I'm learning that they don't have nearly as many bluffs that they, they just kind of have it. And so I was talking to some folks about this the other day where about this subject of kind of this micro edge seeking and table hopping. And I think that, you know, these games kind of remind me of when I get stuck in a really tight game and how you have to be really it forces me to be more precise than i have to be at the meadows and it forces me to have to be more precise with my sizing with when i choose to see bet when i choose to take certain actions 
because they're not as splashy. And so it isn't as easy to recoup those kind of mistakes. So it's it's forcing me to, to look inward and, and be a little more precise in my play, which ultimately will make me better. I mean, that's fair, right? We should expect fellow poker players to be playing better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, I think that the Portland games are kind of still stuck in the past and probably similar to like what Greg experiences. There isn't a lot of evolution going on there in the, in the, in the strategy. I mean, this is kind of why I come out here is to play in, you know, games that are different or tougher than my, my regular game um, so that I can, you know, get some exposure to some of these strategies that I don't see in Portland because um, there's poker outside of Portland. And if as I want to move up in, in stakes and play in bigger games in different locations, um, you know, I got I got to be able to beat these games as well. So um, it's been a really good learning experience. And, uh, you know, I want to ready to fuck some euros up before the trips end. <laughs> well, who doesn't? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, of course, the higher you play, the more Euros you'll see. So, Greg, tell us about your Euro experience. Yeah, I was just uh, going to add something and uh, along with that. that, that one of the uh, sort of trends or, that I've, I've seen or sort of the absence, what I haven't seen much in general is overbetting still. Um, people are, are very comfortable using the the down bet or the, the third pot C bet, but still – there, even in the five ten games, there's not a lot of overbetting. Basically, none on the flop, and and a little to some on the turn, and then on the river. From what I've seen, generally, just with the the top of the range. Although I have seen some exceptions to that, but even so, that's the other thing I guess is that's interesting about the World Series is that you also get a lot of European and uh, Asian players who, at least with the uh, more so with the Europeans, are are stronger players who are I would assume more accustomed to playing online than playing live. Part of that assumption is based on the way they behave in in the games, which they're almost universally bad for the game just personality wise like none of them have any live game skills they're they're not friendly they're by and large not looking to chat or make small talk they're just there to collect their ev and uh i mean i don't know if in general it doesn't seem like it's based on uh being uncomfortable with the language uh, they all for the most part seem to speak english perfectly fine so i don't think it's that they're they're uncomfortable being friendly in in english they just they're just there to collect their ev because that's what they do online they just sit there and, and grind and so that's what they want to do here and they just have no concept of or no idea of how to be friendly with the people that are are there to have fun and and they're for recreation they the like uh the guy i saw last night at the win is just clearly a pro and uh probably a table change or because he comes with more than the max so with his chips in iraq and the the guy on the river shows him one card which is like middle pair and he just sits there and waits for the guy to, to show the other card the guy shows the other card and then he has top pair <laughs> and the guy the guy with middle pair is like why don't you just show and he's like well, you have to show first 
I'm like, come on, like you're wasting our time one. And then clearly the guy is embarrassed to show that he has eight, four offsuit from the small blind. Like, what, what are you doing? But just, so I mean, in general, they're stronger yeah. players, which is, is part of what makes it interesting. But at, at the same time, they, it does get frustrating because they're just so bad for the game. There's a lot of players who are bad for the game and styles too, but let's, let's put it to the group. You're all serious poker players of, of different sorts. You're at what is essentially the convention for your hobby or your skill or your living. Do other players owe it to you to make the experience pleasant? Or are these guys right in you know making the game as miserable and tight and EV focused as possible? What do you, what does the group think? You know, these guys they don't owe us, I mean, they don't owe to make the game, you know, owe us to make our experience better, but they do have some sort of responsibility to kind of make the games a little bit more fun for people because not everybody who, who comes out here to the, to the WSOP is looking at the, you know, looking at flying across the world or, you know, across the state or across the country, looking at their chops, thinking that they're going to make a boatload of cash. I mean, people are coming out here for an experience as well. So when you get the guy who wants to basically slow roll the rec player, like Greg is talking about, all it does is just, it makes that guy not want to play necessarily with, you know, with, you know, with with other people because it's not fun for that guy. Um, You know, people are going to lose some money and, you know, if you're going to lose some money, I mean, at least you want to have, you know, a decent time doing it. So it's up to, it's up to a lot of players to kind of, to, to at least do their part and, you know, be a little bit more friendly, be a little bit more outgoing, not just have your head, head buried in Facebook or whatever the heck these guys are looking at and uh, make it somewhat interesting for, for the average player, because there's more average players than there are, you know, top level pros or whatnot. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they kind of owe it to themselves too. And it's just really amazing. The short sightedness, because at the end of the day, it's a game and somebody that's in town for a convention, they don't have to play poker. And if it's a shitty experience, they can just go to the craps table and have fun with their buddies. I mean, they, they can just choose to spend their money somewhere else. And I mean, so it's not that they owe me anything. I don't care if I'm sitting at a table with a bunch of dudes wearing astronaut helmets and refusing to speak. Like, I just want, I come here and I want to battle and I want to get better. And so I don't give a shit about that for me and my enjoyment because I get the enjoyment from, from the fight and from playing. But I don't think you want to whittle down the poker playing pool to people that have my mentality. I think you want to keep it a fun game. Um, I think you want to keep it lively. I think you want to have it where it's jovial. And uh, so I think they have a responsibility to the game because as somebody who takes from the game, I think you have an obligation to give back to it as well. So I don't think, I mean, and maybe I'm partly saying this because I'm defending the way I behave at the table, but I would say that that everyone, the pros in particular, maybe they don't have an obligation to make the game fun and be the outgoing guy that's making jokes and riling up the entire table. But at a minimum, I think they have an obligation to be courteous 
to be willing to make small talk, to be willing to be friendly and just to be human and not be a robot that sits there and and collects their EV. Poker is a game, but I suppose the, the difference between poker and, say, chess is that when you play chess, you might be there to have a good time, but you understand that you're there and that the, the best player will win. Where as poker is more of a hustle. Uh, I mean, people are under delusions about the level of their skill, and they're not there necessarily understanding that they're going to lose. So there's more of an obligation to be someone that that is willing to entertain or, or willing to be friendly than there would be in a game of pure skill. Yeah, and I, I agree. You don't think you have an obligation to ham it up and have some kind of stand-up routine. But uh, I think just some civility and some friendliness at the table goes a long way. Courtesy, as one of you as one of you put it. But uh, the issue is, is a little more subtle than that. And, you know, Dean is going to be successful at loosening up a table. He's got a great personality. Maybe some of you don't, you know. And, uh, <laughs> That's not very nice. But let's but let's let's look at a more serious side of it because Greg isn't just saying that they make the games bad because they're quiet or discourteous. They actually, you know, the skilled players who are on the the EV collection side, they can make the get, bet game bad through pure strategy. And you know, of of all the games I played, one. This one really sticks out. It, I didn't play there that long, but several online 100 BB specialists were in this game, who I know from the Borgata. And the amount of chips moving at this table, I mean, it felt, they, it felt like crumbs, and nothing was happening. And they were simply waiting, waiting, waiting for someone to make an error, and no one was going to make an error. I mean, I was sitting in the game, and I know I'm looser than other players, but I can recognize when I'm being, you know, trapped. And then very humorously, one of the 100 BB experts made a fold from the field. And after the, the flop was dealt and, and the turn ended the hand, he sort of got this stricken look on his face. And he said, oh, I would have had quads. And he, they, the reason he had mentioned it is because I knew what was in his mind. I can't flat in the field with pocket fives because that's not solver approved. <laughs> and he shortly, shortly left. And, and so did his, his buddy. They were not putting any money into the pot. Now, that's just going to be the nature of a tough game sometimes. But if it's down at the 2-5 level, I don't, I don't think it's particularly compelling to say the recreational player who can simply say, fuck this, I'll go play uh, a tournament at the pavilion now. What I'm saying is there's an opportunity to leave the ring game and go pay into the rake fest of the WSOP if we as a poker community don't make the games a, a little bit lively, whether it's through the strategy itself or the social experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true, and I think some of what you're describing in some of these, how this strategy, I'm somebody that very much enjoys the game, and I'm finding the lack, like, I think a while back, um, you know, you described what constitutes a good game, and the presence of dead money is a really good indicator of how good a game is, whether it's passive or aggressive dead money, and 
with less dead money being available in some of these games, it even for somebody that really enjoys the game of poker and enjoys playing it in a very competitive way, it makes these games a little bit frustrating at times because there's less dead money in them. And so for somebody that's there from a more recreational standpoint, I could see it becoming even more frustrating. Right. And not and not to be negative, that one game, there was a particularly good player who was giving a lot of action and doing it well. And that's the kind of thing I think, if we can be fair and balanced about this, uh, that we need to see in, in a cash game. Not the stifling 100 BB strategy, but uh, the kind of willingness to take a few risks to keep the, the keep, to keep the chips flowing, um, but let's move on and let's talk about your actual cash experiences. Does anyone ha- have a favorite place this series that they've they found they wanted to play or or place that they recommend to others? I'm a big fan of the win. I just like it, um, and I would recommend it. I think it's a I, personally. I think it's a very well run room. I think the staff is really professional. I think the game structures are good. The one three is a 500 cap. The two five is a 1500 cap. So they play nice and deep, which is my preference. And uh, so I, I think it's that's that's my personal uh, favorite. I played at the win one time uh, this trip, and I did not like it as well. Might have been my table. I was playing two five, and it was um, seemed like. Well, Andrew Nemi was there and a bunch of uh, people who were following him. And as soon as he went to the bigger game, they all went along. So I know they were all, <laughs> they were all uh, fans of him. Everyone seemed to play so tight. I, I enjoyed the Aria, but this trip I really liked the Venetian. For some reason, I found that it was more touristy kinds of people floating through. People who wanted to have a good time and... Uh, for me, it was the most profitable. No, I I just played two five, so I didn't play bigger games like you guys. I'm with Luca. I, I like the win best. It's probably my might be my favorite room to play in. But uh, really, you know, for me, it really doesn't matter per se. I mean, there's all there's good and bad about all these rooms here out, out in Vegas. You know, the what I call the kind of like the big five: Aria, Bellagio, Caesars, Win, Venetian. You know, the thing about the Venetian that I found is they move people through that place fairly quickly. Uh, when I was out here the first week of the series, you know, where the lists were 70 to 100 people deep, um, I, I found that the Venetian moved through their list so quick, probably because, like what Dean was saying, with a lot of tourists, you know, moving in and out of the games there so but we also went to a few other places you know you know the orleans i thought was okay despite the sweltering heat on that one particular day and then red rock is always nice but it's just so far off the strip that a lot of people don't make it out there but uh red rock's actually kind of a nice place to play sure that's a a place you can always get a game going they have two five usually available especially if you bring a few players uh, but our New Orleans, or the Orleans rather, experience was was fun, and they they ran out of big chips. They weren't expecting such a big game. <laughs> I, I agree. I like that room also, but maybe the reason I thought it was so fun is because you guys were there. I didn't go there any other time, but that, I, I enjoyed that room also. One of the places that I 
visited that I'd never gone to before was the South Point, which is not far from where I'm staying. It's off the beaten track, and they have these ridiculous neon green and yellow chips. The green chips are about the ugliest chips you can imagine. The ones are the color of wood, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure what they were thinking. Trying to be like, uh, I don't know, like station, you know, like wagon wheels or something. But the game was pretty good. And if you're looking to get away from the strip, that was certainly a place I, I would consider. Um, any other deviations from the normal games and who has played in the pavilion and at the Rio and how, how has that gone? I'd add, yeah, onto what Bruce and Lucas said about the win, uh, just being a nice room and, and by a pretty significant margin, the best run room, um, the games are tougher because I think everyone likes that room. Then, then maybe uh, the games are a little bit tougher than some of the other rooms. But, but Aria is is nice, but also really difficult to get into, uh, even with the longer calling list there. I liked playing at the uh, the MGM, which run mm. ran that uncapped two uh, five game. I think it was uncapped. Um, it was. Yeah, and we I don't think I've been back there since, but I, I did did think that that uh that was a good good game. I don't know that it if it runs very often uh later in the series. The uh I've played a little bit in the pavilion and the the Rio itself. The pavilion is is nice in that you can always get into a game, but the lack of shuffle machines, the chairs, and then the uh, dealers are, are are all drawbacks on on the pavilion. I think the Rio the Rio room itself, the uncapped two five is is nice. For some reason, I don't like the room. It's it's kind of cramped and loud. Maybe I've just run bad there, but I uh, yeah. <clears throat> Despite the game being good, I, I don't love that room. It's uh, it's kind of loud because they're the the real poker room at the hotel. You know, during the series, they're they're also doing tournaments most of the day, and so you've got <clears throat> one of the floor, you know, acting as the tournament director on the microphone like all the time, you know, reminding people, you know, that they can't use their phone or reminding people that they can't talk in a hand and. And so their their PA system is just overwhelming. Uh, that's what I found on the one day that I was out there uh, last time. But uh, the games were pretty good there. So just kind of a by, probably just a byproduct of the series overall, you know. Well, that's the sort of thing I'm looking for. And the, the Rio Room, for instance, is a notorious high action game, and it's proven to be like every time I've gone. And there's certain characters that I sort of introduced Greg to that are just there all the time. <laughs> when you when you say the Rio room, you're talking about the little poker room, not the pavilion, right? Yeah. Okay. And what's what Greg is talking about in terms of the unpleasantness of the room is, well, the lighting is very strange. And if you sit up front, there's sort of a glare, almost like you're on stage. It reminds me of, of being in the theater. <laughs> uh, it's It's a harsh light. And there's a lot of people moving around, and there's no room for tables or anything. And there, there's it's it's a it's a bit of a mess. But it's an uncapped two-five game with a lot of uh, 
people who who love big pots and if you can run well it's it's a great spot to uh to play cash we can't leave out the uh venue for the battle royale every year the nugget that's true too (laughs) um we normally i'd be hosting a lot of games at the nugget which is another uncapped place we have to play smaller, but it's it's because it's a group game. It's it's fun to play incredibly deep. Now the floor changed when we were doing a lot of the five dollar poker club stuff. They had this simply excellent floor who, you know, recognized what I was doing and would would help me set up the game really quickly. But when you're that good as a floor, you quickly get hired away, and he was replaced. And it's been a little harder to get the games going, uh, but we will be doing that again. Uh, this week, in fact. Yeah, you waited till I left town before you did that, didn't you? Well, we didn't. You know, we were scared, Dean. And uh... <laughs> you're just you're just too tough, Dean. <laughs> yeah, Dean with the subtle. Uh, yeah, I came home with thousands and thousands yeah, of dollars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got lucky. <laughs> just you know, a subtle, just a subtle mention of that. <laughs> you've played with me. You know, I got lucky. <laughs> no, no. Some of us have won. Some of us have lost. Uh, before we move on to what's going down with the hands and strategy and, and uh, you know, Porter, you're having a good trip, right? I am. I, I, it, it's a trip that feels like not a good trip, but when I, uh, look at the results that it, it is a good trip, I think part of it is that there's been, uh, lots of ups and downs, especially early. And, and I think a lot of my results are based off of just one session that I had in the, uh, five ten game at Venetian. Uh, but yeah, overall, uh, it's a good, good trip. I've felt like I've been playing well pretty much the entire time, but, uh, I think I'm still sort of recovering my, uh, my confidence from, uh, the way I was running leading into the trip, but yeah, by and large, it's a, it's a good trip so far. Right. And so the reason I ask is usually when we're doing well and playing well, we move up here. The opportunity (laughs) to play bigger is one of the bigger attractions of coming out here. So what are your plans in your final week of your trip to get into a bigger game and how big? Right. I, my plans are to play at least two more uh, five, ten sessions, hopefully at the Aria, and then possibly play in the ten twenty game at Bellagio. But we'll see. So I want to make the last segment about our trip here, about strategy and about how we've been playing. What what has been, we heard a little bit about what worked for Dean, and he needed to increase his pre-flop aggression and also respond to overly aggressive players with uh, a bit more flop passivity, pre-flop passivity. What's been working? What's been not working for you guys? Uh, let's start with Bruce. Yeah, well, what's been working for me is a lot of isolation and some four bets. Um, that's been working, uh, generally speaking. What hasn't been working for me is my turn and river play. Usually once we get to the turn, and especially on the river, a lot of the bluffs just seem to go away because they just have value. And so from a not working perspective, a lot of my um, experience in the first part of the series was basically just, you know, running into the top of everybody's range often 
<laughs> very often. So it's been pretty much a pre-flop and flop game for me, and then uh, trying to mitigate the turns in the rivers. And but uh, that's that side is kind of won. It's kind of won over. So the first week out here wasn't very good for me. Luca, this is your second time around. What what are you doing to to make it work? Uh, one is uh, I'm going to stop paying people off. Um, <laughs> that uh, that was killing me at the beginning of the trip. And then some of it was misappropriating ranges. Some of it was kind of similar to Porter. I didn't come into this trip running all that great or even honestly playing all that great. So I think I was suffering from a bit of a mental game leak where in these bigger pots, I would just have an attachment to the pot and and uh, make ambitious call downs because I you would see all the money in there and 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 you know was hoping I'd make the right hero call and, and take it down. So I think that uh, not paying people off uh, is an adjustment that I'm going to be making, and then just continuing to be what has worked is just being really efficient with my betting, really understanding board textures, uh, understanding, you know, how many streets I can actually get with certain holdings against some of these guys. And so just kind of cleaning up the, the mechanics um, and keeping my mental game sharp. Ah, mental game. Is mental game a thing? I mean, I think it is. I think that there are definitely times where I will make decisions that I that are driven by more, I guess, emotional factors or other things where I'm not thinking spots through. Um, so I think that for me, it's very real and it, you know, it impacts my decision making. Sometimes it actually even like impedes my decision making where maybe I'll snap call something where I should have taken the time to think about it because I'm feeling impatient or frustrated or entitled or whatever the feeling is. So it creeps into my decision making. So um, I, I think it's real. When we're here at the WSOP, we're away from all our support systems besides each other. You're away from your family, work, even the atmosphere here is dry and dead. Do you think that you have to do something to combat the actual situation that you're in? In other words, does Las Vegas work for some people better than others? I think it does. I mean, um, you know, time is, you know, time gets distorted out here. You know, you if you come out here and you run well, then, you know, a week or two weeks or whatever, you know, goes by pretty quick. If you're not playing so good or you're not running so well, it becomes a drag. And then it's a matter of, you know, you're trying to do things to dig yourself out of this hole, uh, and you're doing it in a place where, like you said, you're pretty much away from your support system unless you brought your significant other or your family out here, which a lot of us don't do. We're out here, you know, we're either in hotels or rentals or whatnot, and we may have our, our poker buddies that are staying in the same house or something like that, but, but you're away from your home environment, which is a big deal. And uh, to tag on to what Luca was saying, I think mental game is a is a big deal. And, you know, some of the things that he talked about, I can certainly echo as far as, you know, getting emotionally attached to things and entitlement and, you know, hoping for the hero call because, 
you know, it's a big pot and there's a lot of chips and you're like, you know, how did I get here? And God damn it, you know, that pot should be mine or whatever you're thinking. So, yeah, it, when you're out here in Vegas, it's a it, it's a different environment because you can't just get up and go home necessarily. You got a flight or you got to drive or whatever it is. And so you're kind of you're kind of here for the duration. So you kind of have to either stick it out or try to make the best of it, which can be tough sometimes. Yeah, some of these things you're saying <clears throat> I mean, that I'm hearing today are sort of extra strategical. Uh, the idea that you can make a hero call or the idea that, you know, you've been struggling and you need a, a big pot because there's a lot of chips in it are kind of beyond what you should be thinking about in a hand where you should simply be thinking about the right decision. But if you can't can't go home and relax or you can't find a place you've got to do something to make yourself feel better and get out of this sort of state of what sounds like a bit of pre-tilt uh going on between some of you uh greg you're the closest to home and you even went home talk about mental game a little bit you know there's it's it's so much easier to play better when you're doing well. And, and that's sort of a mystery maybe. I mean, there was, there was one hand early in the series and in, in a two, five game at the win where I didn't pull the trigger on what on paper would be a really obvious overbet on the river. If, like if someone had shown it to me, I would have known the right play, I think without a doubt, but I did not pull the trigger in, in game. Instead, I bet two thirds and I get called by a uh, top pair. But I feel like if I'm doing well, if I'm confident, then I pull the trigger there every time. Uh, so there's, I guess, a question, well, do I really not know that spot as well as I think? Because if I do know the spot that well, then I should be able to just do the right thing and make the correct decision whether I've been running well or not. So it, it could be that those spots where we think that we don't make the the right decision uh, and it's because, oh, well, uh, I, I'm, I'm not running well or I, I, my, I was on tilt or I didn't have my confidence. Well, maybe we don't know those spots as well as we think. And that's why we don't make the correct decision. I think another thing that is interesting for the world series, at least for me, I play in a really small player pool. And so sitting down at a table with eight people that I don't know, uh, one thing that is, is really important that I am not as adept at as I would like is as soon as I sit down thinking about profiling, all eight players, uh, considering what they're up to, what they're capable of, why they're there, and then having a plan before I even get started. Because there, too often there are times where I don't, don't consider those things as deeply as I would like until a spot comes up. Um, that's, that's happened a couple times on this trip, and it's something that I've focused more on in the, in the last two sessions. Right. <clears throat> so you are expressing something that almost everyone falls victim to, and that's being sort of lost in the, the crowd of the game and the blur of the game and not being above the game, but you've identified it and it's helping you win. Good. Another thing that can help you win, of course, or help you feel better if you've, you're losing, is you get, to, you get to eat really well in Vegas, right? 
So what? Uh, where did you guys go to uh, to treat yourselves? What What does a poker player? What does a cash game player do after losing three hundred big blinds and needs to little pick me up? Baskin and Robbins. Baskin and Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. Oh my god. You are you are the worst. The search for the perfect Manhattan. <laughs> Ta- well, Tacos El Gordo has been the uh the favorite spot for this trip because it's uh, such a short distance from the win and uh cheap and convenient and really good. That's that's it. That is all you need to know if you're around the win. And you can just follow all the poker players going there if you're lost. Everyone knows about it. It's a, it's an amazing restaurant, and uh, you just go in, you choose your favorite meat, and ten dollars later, you've got a, a whole a whole meal. It's it's terrific. Can I tell a horrible story? I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> I I had the best run financially and the worst run foodie wise, and I'm I love good food, but. I couldn't, just because of the the timing of of my play and so forth, I could never find a good restaurant or the, or a decent place to eat. And I wanted to go out with you the one evening and r- ran well in that stupid tournament and ended up I got finished later than than we could go out to eat. So it, but the the worst experience food wise, I got done. Humble brag. Yes, sorry. I got done playing one evening, and so I'm looking for a half-decent restaurant. I didn't want to go too far, so I walked over to the to the link, which is up the street from Venetian, and I thought I'm going to find a decent place to eat up here. So this, um, I'm not I'm not I'm not even going to say the name of the place. I went up to uh, a restaurant upstairs, and they didn't have a table. Well, I could see they had several tables open but the hostess says no there's you'll have to there's like a 20 minute wait i said well can i just go sit at the bar so i go to the bar the bartender came up and took my order drink order i ordered something to drink and got a menu and uh took one sip of my drink and ordered my uh entree and uh, everyone was just as nice as could be and sure enough like 12 20 something punks come in behind me and just stand there, order their drinks, and they're yapping it up and drinking right behind me. Of course, I'm, I'm and they were like encroaching on my space and pissed me off. And so I walked back over to the hostess and I said, these people are so rude and annoying. I said, can I please have a table? And I can still see there's like 17 of them open. She says, no, we have nothing open at this time. I said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I just walked out. Didn't pay, didn't didn't leave any money. Didn't pay my bill. Uh, I just left. So why why aren't you mentioning the name, Dean? Are they a potential advertiser for the uh, podcast? No, I don't. I mean, the statute of limitations <laughs> is not over yet, and I don't want them coming after. <laughs> As the I've never left a restaurant without paying or without uh, at least acknowledging. Okay. I owe them the, something. The problem with this story, Dean, is no one in the history of good food ever started a story. Uh, so I went to the link to find a restaurant. <laughs> I told you my bad beat at this uh, at this tr- trip was It wasn't food. a bad beat. That was you calling off with Ace-9 and then wondering why you lost. <laughs> Dean, I posted my restaurant list in the chat. You I know. know. We got... And I didn't get there to are... visit any of them. Yeah, there's some good uh, places that are open 
late at night, but they are, I think, for the most part, off the strip. I will do better next time, hopefully. You know what was surprisingly good was when I took a dinner break at the Orleans. They had, I think, I think it was called Ballywicks or some like sort of English name for an American sort of gastropub, and it was it was decent, and it was cool too because that room was was hot and like there was no there wasn't enough air conditioning to handle the, the players. But for for everything that happened at that game, that uh, that was a good place to eat. And no one's going to know about it. Well, uh, I, the went there, one, I went there after your recommendation. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I ordered like a flatbread pizza. And it was toward the end. They were almost closing for the night. And the pizza was too thick and wasn't cooked perfectly. And that eh, just frustrated the hell out of me. Why would you order a flatbread pizza? Who knows? I should have ordered a steak. Dean needs his own travel food show. You got to think through the menu, bud. You, 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 flatbread is like they provide flatbread pizzas for people who don't know what to order and children. <laughs> and in many ways, I fit the children profile. Well, guys, is there anything you uh, want to add? I, we've done sort of a tour of the games, the strategies, the concerned. I didn't get to whine enough about all the people I met and all the problems I've had, but I'm not going to. Uh, I want to wish you all a great last week or last two weeks or even if you're playing until the very bitter end of the series i hear in the voices and concern there's that there is something of a mental game thing going on and you've got to do what greg's doing and really focus when you walk into these games there's nothing harder than a ring game Uh, this is not a 20 bb tournament stack where we just guess and hope and, and, and run well. You're playing against fellow players, and they all have some degree of expertise. And with a little focus, you can you can be the best. You can be your best player, I think. Uh, you're not owed anything, uh, but you, you can definitely earn it. I think, as Christian Soto told me the other day, playing well is easy. It's winning that's hard. Uh, think about that. So on behalf of the zoo, I want to thank Greg, Luca, Bruce, and Dean for coming on. And we're going to get back to the games. Thanks, gentlemen. Have fun, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Yep, thank you. Thank you also for tuning into the Poker Zoo. You can find us at persuadio.nl. There's also a place there to leave a comment, contact Persuadio about coaching or anything else of import or any feedback you might have on the show. Tell your friends about the show, as we would love to increase our subscriber base. Until next time, good luck to tables.